welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. So the word of the God says, Por que a qual dos anjos disse jamais, Tu és meu filho, hoje te gerei? E a outra vez, eu lhe gerei por pai, e ele me será por filho? Six. E quando outra vez introduz no mundo o primogênito, diz, e todos os anjos de Deus o adorem. E quanto aos anjos diz, o que os seus anjos faz ventos e de seus ministros labareda de fogo. Mas do Filho, ó Deus, o teu trono subsiste pelos séculos dos séculos, centro da igualdade e cetro do teu reino. Amaste a justiça e aborreceste a iniquidade. Por isso, Deus, o teu Deus, te ungiu com óleo de alegria, mais do que os teus companheiros. Essa foi a palavra de Deus. This is the word of God. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say? Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just come in and hear your word, but Lord, you would help us apply it to our lives in a very specific way, in a very personal way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. I hope you had a good week. I know I've heard over and over, it's been a long week. It's been a long week. I know a lot of school started. Praying for all you students and all of the teachers. Keep everybody in, uh, in your prayer when it comes to the education of our littles. That's great. Um, we're going to be basically continuing straight through as we've started this series going through the book of Hebrews. We've entitled it The Greatest. And the idea of the author of Hebrews is basically helping us understand the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in and above all things. Now, why is this important? Because at Church at the Well, and if you're a Christ follower, the idea of Jesus being supreme in all things is key. And we have a high Christology here. Everything we do is about Jesus. And as we go through this book, what I'm hoping, maybe if you're new to church world or you're just trying to figure out who's this Jesus guy and what does he really mean, it's this letter that's written to the Hebrews that helps us understand why Jesus is so valuable and so important. And what the author is doing is systematically attempting to say, here's all of the things, especially from the Old Testament, since he's writing to Hebrews, that you probably are putting ahead of Jesus, and I'm, I'm basically attempting to prove to you that Jesus is supreme to all of those things, and he need to be, needs to be placed above them all. So one of the things I challenged you with when we started this series is you need to be praying about what does it look like to have these things in your life that you're placing above Christ? What are they? Now, here's where the rub comes. As Christ followers, depending on how long you've been following Jesus, you might say, well, I don't know that I have that anymore, and I'm going to challenge that and say, you do. We live in sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies. Jesus has come. We are freed from sin. However, we still struggle. And there's still these things in our life where if we really evaluate them, we're going to go, wow, I've put my kids above Jesus. I've put my spouse above Jesus. I've put the Bible above Jesus. I've put church above Jesus. I've put work, money, fame, whatever it is, vacation, travel, this idea of resting, all good things. But Jesus has to be supreme. And what 
the book of Hebrews is going to conclude with, so I'm just kind of giving you like, this is where we're headed. He's going to say all of those things that you see as good in your life are only going to be better if Jesus is supreme in them. And the only way that you're going to find joy in them is if Jesus is supreme in them. Which means Jesus is supreme in your work. Jesus is supreme in your marriage. Jesus is supreme in your parenting. Jesus is supreme in your education. Whatever it is. And it's in that moment that as Christ followers, we get to experience the joy that we've been purposed in Christ to experience. And so we're kind of picking up from where we left off last week. Tony preached last week, and I'm going to back up just one verse. not going to spend a lot of time on it. I just kind of want to give us the introduction to where we're going. Today we're going to be talking about angels. Angels are freaky, so you need to get ready. I'm not going to spend all of my time, obviously, just talking about angelology. That's a fancy word. You can impress your friends. It just means the study of angels. What I've learned is that especially like... When you go to seminary or you're, you're getting your, your upper degrees or you're just really studying theology, what they've done is they've just taken the world word and added ology behind it. And so if you want to impress anybody, just take that, right? <laughs> we could do chairology, right? And study of chairs. And so anyway, hopefully that's helpful to you. Party, party friends, right? Okay. Verse four, it says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So as we're moving through the book of Hebrews, the first thing that the author of Hebrews is going to challenge is to say, look, you need to understand, yes, angels, they're kind of cool. They're interesting. There's a lot in scripture that we can kind of discern about what angels look like and how they function and what their purpose is. However, they're not as cool as Jesus. And as I was processing through this and studying, I'm like, why is this the first one? Like, what is really the issue here? Because I don't know. I don't know if anybody here is like, oh, I'm so into angels, right? Like, so I grew up as an 80s and 90s kid, and it seemed like in the Christian world back then, like angels were in. I don't know if they're in anymore. I have no idea what's in anymore. Okay, so maybe. I don't, I don't remember the last time I've been to like a Christian bookstore, but back then you go to a Christian bookstore. Does that even exist anymore? I don't know. But you go to a Christian bookstore, and it was angels everywhere, right? And this is typically what they looked like. They looked like people, but they kind of glowed a little bit. They typically were like really white, and they had these really cool wings, and everybody collected these little figures of them, or it was like, oh, they had a halo, right? I'm thinking the halo thing was there. Angels were a big deal. And I'm like, wow, was this like big back then? Were like angels in? Like if you went into the store to buy a t-shirt in like Israel, was it like, oh, angels like everywhere, right? And I think what is actually happening here when I go back and look at, angels were so involved in the giving of the law in Old Testament time. They were constantly giving messages to individuals, and there's these crazy stories about what angels did and, what, and how they functioned. And so I think that from a practical sense, we're talking to individuals who understand living by Old Testament law and saying, all right, angels are really, really, really important. But then there's a second kind of thing, I think, and this may hit you, it may not. The concept of God from a human perspective is hard. Right? The idea, like there's things about God, the biblical God, that when we attempt to contemplate, it will cause our brain to freak out a little bit. Right? The idea of eternity, it, it doesn't compute for me. It's difficult. In fact, 
I've mentioned this before, like Aristotle, one of our greatest, you know, world's greatest thinkers, I guess, philosophers, was like, man, when I try to think about going back and back and back and keep going, keep going, keep going, what we come to the realization is that something had to exist forever. He called it the unmoved mover, right? But the process of trying to think, how could something exist forever is really difficult for us. The concept of saying, okay, we have this holy God who's all sovereign and all powerful and create the world just by speaking. That's difficult for us to process. Rabbit, there it is, right? We've never seen this. It's hard, it's hard for us to compute. We understand that when we see something, we can go, okay, this platform, it wasn't just here by accident. Somebody created it, and here it is, and used raw materials, and so on and so forth. But to, so we understand creation, but to think of something being created out of nothing in Latin, the ex nihilo, just, okay, it exists, is difficult for us. There's concepts in Christian theology that are hard. The Trinity. I get a lot of questions about the Trinity, and I'm like, man, if you can find somebody who can explain the Trinity perfectly to you, then probably run away (laughs) because it's difficult. It's a difficult concept. It's real, it's true, it's accurate. There's a lot of things that we can take from from Trinitarian theology that help us understand who God is and what our role in his kingdom is. But it's hard for us to grasp and understand. Because of those things, I think that what happens from a practical standpoint is oftentimes we'll take things that we view as heavenly but that aren't God and focus our attention on those because we can try to understand them. We have religions that say, well, okay, we're going to pray to saints, which Scripture says we're not to do. If you're a Christ follower, according to Scripture, you're considered a saint. Don't pray to me. Right? Why are we not to do that? Because that's not, that's not how it works. It's not what we're supposed to do. We have angels, individuals that will worship angels. We have, um, I remember before we moved to Boston 12 years ago, we went with the loves to this business conference and there was this famous actor who was like, my, my dad died recently and I'm so overwhelmed. I mean, she was telling the story about what a terrible guy he was. And then she said, I'm so overwhelmed that he's now an angel floating in heaven looking over me. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> right? But what's the attempt? The attempt is to say, I'm attempting to find something that I can relate to this holy God that I can't possibly understand. And I'm looking for these things that are spiritual and I'm gonna relate to them. And in order to relate to them, we put all of these anthropomorphic things on them. We, we kind of humanize them, right? So even, I don't know if you know much about angels, but even if you've thought about angels, you've probably got a picture that isn't accurate, right? I remember, like, or then there's this cartoon theology, right? I talk about this a lot, where we picture angels, and there's like, okay, there's the angel, and there's the demon, and they sit on each other's shoulder, and they kind of war back and forth with each other, and you've got the guy in the costume with the pitchfork, and you've got the other one with the wings, and there, there doesn't seem to be like, okay, we got to talk of this person into what they're going to do that's good, and what they shouldn't do, and, or we have this picture of angels, like, floating on a cloud with a harp, Right? All of these things, and it's our attempt to bring God down to our level. 
And what ends up happening when we do that is we end up worshiping the thing that we're trying to understand that we've actually made up instead of the creator of all things. So I think that's probably what's happening here. So if angels aren't your thing, they will be after today and, some, and next week, I think, because they're just crazy cool, right? But if angels aren't your thing, you're like, eh, I don't know about angels. It's something. What have you, what is it? Like, we gotta wrestle with this. What is it that you've attempted? Like, I'll hear all the time, oh, I'm spiritual. Okay, what does that mean? What is it that you're trying to take that you view as spiritual and worship it over the holy God because you think you can understand that. Now here's gonna be my challenge to you in this. You're gonna have to process this during this week. If you can fully grasp spirituality, if you can fully grasp and bring God down to this level that you can fully understand then he's really not that big of a God. And I will say this, if you can understand God fully then you shouldn't worship him. Right? It's an attempt to say, I don't know who this God is and he's beyond me, so I'm gonna bring him down to my level and that's what I'm gonna worship. So the question is, how big is your God? So let's dive in here. The whole point of these passages is the author of Hebrews is going to attempt to give some specific things that make Jesus supreme over angels, okay? And the first one is we're gonna see that Jesus is superior in name. So when we back up to verse four, it says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he was inherited is more excellent than theirs. Then we keep going. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what we're looking at, if I'm trying to make this as simple as I possibly can, angels on this side, Jesus on this side, or whichever you like, okay? And now we're going, okay, this is how God is relating to angels, and this is how God is relating to Jesus. And the first thing that he's saying is, there is no place in scripture where, G, where the Lord, God, has identified angels in the way that he's identified Jesus in name. So he, let's, let's go through each one. He's gonna use Old Testament passages to help make his defense. And so the first one, this, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is a quote from Psalm 2, I think it's verse seven. So you could go there and look it up. And what he's saying is this, I've never looked, God has never looked at an angel and said, I've begotten you. And if you've grown up in old church world, you know John 3, 16, and there was this old word that we used in it. Like I grew up memorizing the old King James. If you're still reading the old King James, I don't want to judge you, but I don't know why. Because <laughs> it's, it's hard, right? We don't say thus and these and those. Like, like it's, 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 Hey, you, you do your thing, right? It's an accurate representation of, of Scripture. But I remember, for God so loved the world that he, gave his only, or that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him, wait, that's not it. I'm wrong. For God, see, I've changed it. For God so loved the world, and he says begotten son, right? He brought his begotten son. And I remember being a kid and listening to that, and I'm like, what in the world? Like, when's the last time you used the word begotten? And what does it mean? And it's being repeated here. 
Jesus, the begotten son. It's, it's a word that is so difficult to translate in English that I feel like they made up a word. Because I've never heard anybody else say begotten, right? It's, an, it's, it's interesting. And what the connotations of this word are kind of built around is it's not just, it's not created, it's not birthed, it's not... Um, you started from this point. I, I have a, a starting point. It, it revolves around everything, but it revolves around something being eternal. It's, it's more of making a claim that you are something truthful and real. And this is it's hard to explain, this word. But it's not what we think it means. And so he didn't look at it. Like we know from Scripture that angels are created beings. At some point, God created angels. This word begotten reminds us that Jesus was never created. He was always there. He was always God. God has always been in a trinity. There's always been a perfect Trinitarian harmony between one God represented in three persons. And once again, this is difficult for us to grasp, but Jesus was always there. Always. At the beginning of this study, when we, at the beginning of Hebrews, we talked about the fact that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. He was there at the very beginning. We talked about the fact that Jesus was always the plan. It's not like God was, oh, I'm going to create this world, and oh, I didn't see this fall was going to happen in Gen recorded in Genesis chapter 3, and now I don't know what to do, so we have a committee meeting, and it's like, what are we going to do? And, and there was Jesus, and he was like, I'll do something about it. That wasn't how it went. Jesus was always the plan. Why? I don't know. Other than, like Tony mentioned last week, God's glory is never going to be denied. The plan is always going to bring glory to God. And in this world, in what God is doing through mankind and sin and rebellion and redemption through Jesus Christ, it brings glory to Jesus in its most profound way. Always. Jesus was always there. The angels weren't. They were created. Jesus was always there. Next verse, 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, and he, shall, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, I got asked this question last week. It was, like, it was a Trinitarian question, and it was like, how is Jesus like the son to God? So I want to explain this to you, because this one I actually can't explain from Scripture. It's not what you think it means. I'm done. We're done, Okay. Have we got it? All right. What we're talking about when we look at, okay, Jesus is the Son of God. It is attempting to relate to everything that sonship represented in the culture that it was given to. And it's so different than we think it is. So let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. So we have a father and a son. And typically, if you've read the Old Testament or you've just read any history book, you know that the greatest like individual in the family, sorry, argue it all you want, was the father and then the firstborn son. And everything was about that firstborn son. This was the heritage. This is the inheritance. This is the one that everything was going to be passed on to. And in that culture, that firstborn son position was so important. 
the culture almost revolved around it in so many ways. It's, it's why when the Lord actually, in Scripture, there are moments where the Lord doesn't choose the firstborn that makes it so radical because it's so against the grain. But in that culture, this firstborn son, when he was approved by the father, and typically approval just meant they came of a certain age, then the son basically took on the persona and identity, not like a weird like scientific way, like science fiction type of a way, but in a cultural way to say, I am just as important as the father. I, everything is being passed on to me. I am the future. I am the legacy. And so when individuals, when the son came of age and the inheritance was told, this is going to my son, when somebody saw the father or that son, they saw the same person. Are you seeing the connection? It's really interesting how it worked. So if I was cruising around Jerusalem, right, and here's Father Abraham, right? I don't know, I just picked a name. You pick a name. And he has a son, and we're going to, just so I don't get really too weird, we're going to have a son, Bob. So Abraham has his son, Bob. That's not weird at all. And I see Bob and Abraham walking down the street, and Bob is of age, and he is the firstborn. I will view Bob and Abraham as pretty much the same person. Now, they have different... I understand personalities, but when it comes to their responsibility, when it comes to what they have, when it comes to their reputation, when it comes to everything that they've, that's happened in the past for this specific family, they are perfect equals. Perfect equals. In fact, to the point where if business needed to be done, if a decision had to be made, if you had one of them in front of you, it was like having both of them in front of you. It's interesting. You can study this stuff. It's fascinating. It's interesting. But now let's read this again. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Comparing angels, Jesus. Never to an angel did he say, you're equal to me. But to Jesus, you're equal to me. Jesus said this a lot. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In this connotation, that hits, right? He's not saying I'm the Father, but he's saying I'm equal to the Father. There's so much here. I, if we think about this idea of him being son and we relate it to that culture, what we also have to look at is that when Jesus was resurrected and the Father bestowed kingship on him in a way that we understood, and it says that he now sits at the right hand of the Father and he's our advocate, he was declaring for all of humanity a proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That he is literally the son from our standpoint. Okay, so let's back up just a hair because I don't want to be confusing. Was Jesus always king? Yes. Was Jesus always there? Yes. Was Jesus always divine? Yes. So what's the point? Why does he have to declare this in this way? For our benefit. 
for the benefit of mankind. Just like in any scriptures, the Lord is revealing himself to us in a way that we can attempt to understand to the best of our finite minds and ability. And so he's saying, I'm relating this to this idea of sonship and inheritance and how this all works. And then the proof of that, the proof of what Jesus claimed, the proof of him claiming to be deity and God in the flesh, but not the Father, was he died, he rose again, he's been crowned in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can picture he sits at the right hand of the Father and advocates for us, in a way that we can understand he's going to come back and it looks a little different, read Revelation. So it's something that we can grasp, but he never did this with an angel, ever. The relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian bond is so much different than that of an angel. And if you can grasp that, we can move on. So different. All right, next. Jesus is superior because he is... Well, let me read it first. Verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is superior because he is to be worshiped. What's interesting about this specific passage is that he's saying the angels actually worship Jesus. We have nowhere in scripture where God is worshiping angels. We have nowhere in scripture where Jesus is asking his disciples, hey, there's these crazy beings out there, they're angels, you need to worship them. In fact, the angels come to worship Jesus. Um, this is found in Psalm 97. Let all God's angels worship him. Every time that we sing songs in a church service, we call it worship. And it's, it's always a pet peeve of mine. I don't like saying we're gonna enter a time of worship because I think theologically, we're always supposed to be in a time of worship. Meaning everything that you do is supposed to be an act of worship to the Father for the glory of Jesus. It's supposed to be. So when we go to work, that's supposed to be an act of worship. When we pray, it's an act of worship. When we sing, it's an act of worship. When we're with our spouse, it's an act of worship. When we're dating, it's an act of worship. It's supposed to be. Everything's supposed to be an act of worship. So I've always said, like I always like the, the terminology, okay, we're going to worship Jesus through music. It's, the, it's worship through music because music obviously can be an act of worship to Jesus. So that was my little pet peeve, okay? So don't worry about it, this is me, I'm weird. So we have this, but every time we sing a song, we're, we're processing this idea of worshiping the Lord, right? We're picky about the songs that we sing because we want them to be theologically accurate. But when, if you really process the singing of songs and the words that we sang, oftentimes we sing words that aren't really true to how we're living or behaving, right? It's, it's no different than regular songs. Like, I was trying to think of a, of a song. Um, there's a, a Rick Astley song. Wow, I'm going way back. Um, and it's like, I will never give you up. I will never lie to you. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, you know the song, right? And I'm like, this is the song of lies. 
right? It sounds really romantic, but the reality is it's not true. Like he is at some point going to give her up. He is at some point going to lie to her, right? So we sing these songs, we're like, oh, it's so romantic. And then we'll actually set up like this is what it's gonna be. But the reality is that's not true. Okay, if I get really weird, theologically, sinkers world, sinkers bodies, you're gonna blow it at some point. It's not gonna be like that, right? And then if you accept that as a promise, like I'm thinking about the girl going, oh yeah, great, then I choose you if that's how you're gonna be. She's gonna be gravely disappointed very shortly, right? And then she's gonna go, but you sang this song. <laughs> when we, so we do this a lot, but when we sing worship songs, oftentimes we're singing things that aren't necessarily going on in our life. So why do we sing them? Is it a lie? <laughs> Not necessarily. We can worship Jesus through music and proclaim things that may be in ways that we're not living because we know that by God's grace in Christ, all things are possible. So you might be singing something that you're not doing, but declaring that you know that in Jesus, he can actually give you the grace to do it. So it's not necessarily lying, but it's recognizing who God is and the grace that we have in Christ and the freedom that we have in Christ and the understanding that we believe that if anything in our life's going to change, it's going to have to come from the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and that is, and we're capable of anything through that. Will it always be perfect? Will it always happen? Of course not, we've already talked about that. But it's possible. You have every, if you, if you know Jesus and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you have all the power you need to never sin again. You also have a choice. And your sin-cursed flesh and the Holy Spirit are constantly at odds with each other. And sometimes you choose this and sometimes you choose that. But you do have the power to always choose righteousness. You do. So we worship that. We sing about that. We praise Jesus for that. We praise God for being reconciled to him through the Father, being the the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we have that ability. So these are the things that we sing in worship. This is what the angels declare to the Lord. If you've ever read Isaiah chapter six, first it should freak you out a little bit. It describes what angels look like. I'm not gonna read it. Oftentimes people are like, well, you should. No, you can read it, <laughs> right? So turn, go sometime this week and read Isaiah chapter six. I'll give you the, the highlights. Cliff, Cliff Notes version. I don't know who Cliff is. So I just realized that. Cliff Notes version. We have Isaiah transported somehow to the throne room of God. God is there sitting on the throne. It's described in scripture as high and lifted up. I think that's both probably physically correct and spiritually correct. And then we have these crazy beings flying around and it describes them, right? It describes these angels flying around and doing what they're doing. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is filled with his glory. We actually have worship songs that declare these things. The angels are constantly worshiping God. They're constantly worshiping Jesus. They're constantly worshiping the Father. They're constantly worshiping the Holy Spirit. There is this, you know, I I mentioned this not too long ago where somebody had come to me and said, you know that there is one thing that God can't do for himself and that's worship. And I said, actually, that's not correct. 
Jesus worships the Father. The Holy Spirit worships Jesus. This Trinitarian community is perfect. It lacks nothing. He doesn't need us for anything. We worship out of the understanding of who he is. We also worship out of the lack of understanding for who he is. Because some things poetry just says better, right? It's our emotions. You're way beyond who we are. But picture the angels flying around doing this thing. And then when you read that description, it's going to freak you out a little bit because it's not the picture that you see in the Christian bookstore. If they actually depicted those creatures, you would never collect them. Or you might, right? And you'd be like, this is like a Tolkien thing. (laughs) Right? Hopefully you got that reference. (laughs) If you didn't, you can read it later, okay? Ask somebody. The angels worship Jesus. You don't worship something that isn't higher than you. You know who the only people are that do that? Human beings. This is why it's hard for us to grasp. I asked you at the beginning of this passage, what are you worshiping? What are you putting above Jesus? Well, that's worship. Worship, we have to understand, is it comes from the term, of English etymology would be worth-ship. You worship what you hold to its greatest worth. Biblically, this idea of worship, glory, we worship what we see as glorious or, or above us, it, it has this connotation of being weighty. What is the weightiest thing? That brings the most glory, and that's what we worship. So if we tie all of that together and I say, what do you worship? It's easy to think through it this way. Well, what do I see as the weightiest thing in my life? What is it that's helping me make the decisions? What's, what's weighing in the most? What is it that I'm acting on? What's weighing the most? What's weighing the most is what you're giving glory to, and what you're giving glory to is what you're worshiping. It all ties together. The angels... These created beings see God on high, the Trinity, as the most weighty thing. So what do they do? They worship. I want to throw just something out there because it's fun, but somebody asked me once, do angels sing? And I'm like, I don't know. It never says anywhere in Scripture that angels sing. Find it. It doesn't say it. Everywhere it says that they're declaring something, it says they're saying it. I think they might sing. I feel like they might, right? I don't know. I want them to sing. Because we say things like angelic voice, and I'm like, where'd that come from? I don't know. Somehow we think angels sing, right? But they're constantly worshiping. Whether they're singing or they're proclaiming or they're professing, they are glorifying the Lord with what's coming out of their mouth constantly. In Isaiah 6, it denotes this throne room where these angels are doing this nonstop. They are declaring the worth of the Lord nonstop. If I were just to stop right here and go, what would happen if Christ's followers did that? What would change in your life if you did that? If your brain just nonstop declared the worth 
and the glory of God the Father. And every, everything that you were doing was revolving around that because it was never off your mind. What would change? Everything. Everything would change. Jesus is superior because the angels worship him. Last one. Jesus is superior because he is divinely sovereign. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We have this comparison. What does this mean? Of angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay. We have crazy stories in scripture about angels. Um, We're going to go over one of them. But before we get there, what is this passage talking about? It says that he makes these angels like winds. They're, They're speedy. They're fast. They move. They're functioning. They're going. It's describing some of their attributes, some of their characteristics, some of the ways they function. It also says, we'll go through it specifically, and this is from Psalm 104. It says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They, they move quick and they're powerful. They're like fire. They're, they, can, they can consume like fire. They're powerful like fire. Like if you think of most recently, I don't even know, are they out, the, the fires in Canada? I'm assuming because we can breathe again, yeah. right? But it, I don't know if there's a firefighter in here. First, thank you for doing what you do. Fire, when it gets out of control, it's insane. I mean, it, it is so destructive. You know, it's all, like, we always think, like, well, why don't they just put it out? Are you kidding? Like, when that fire gets out of control and it's that hot, you throw water on it and the fire's just like, whatever. Like, it dissolves before it even hits the flame. Like, that's terrible science. It doesn't dissolve. It evaporates before it hits the flame. <laughs> I have a biology degree, and I said that. It evaporates before it hits the flame. Okay? So when you think about, like, fire, this cons- like, we can picture angels that way. Everywhere in Scripture where a person comes in contact with an angel... What do they do? They hit the ground and they scream like little girls or little boys. Because <laughs> I've heard some little boys scream worse. You just, like, you lose control. Why? Because you're seeing something that's scary. Everybody repeat after me angels are scary. Right? You don't want to see an angel. You might someday. I don't, I've never seen one. Okay? Why do I say you might someday? Because people in scripture have. But they're not, it's not like, oh, Lord, send me an angel. If you saw an angel, you were going to be like, send, please send that thing away. <laughs> right? They're scary. They're intense. There's scriptures of them holding things like flaming swords, which is really cool. But to hold a flaming sword, you've got to be pretty intense. They're messengers. They're constantly moving around. In this passage, it describes them as ministers, meaning servants. The Greek word might be doulos. Right, but it's well. It's actually not doulos, the Greek word, because it's a it's a it's a servant that can't be released. Doulos would be a servant that is 
desiring to be led, right? Putting themselves in bondage in, in, intentionally. Angels aren't that way. It's we are servants. We just do what we're told to do. That's what an angel is. It's a minister of the Lord. Why does the Lord have ministers? I don't know. But they're ministers of the Lord. They're constantly delivering messages. Think of messages that you know about angels showing up. So at the incarnation, right, Mary is visited by an angel. And a message is delivered that actually ties into what we're talking about. A son is going to be born to you. And this is who that son is. It's God in the flesh. Emmanuel. So it answers the age-old question of the Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. <laughs> the angel comes and talks to Mary, and Mary's like, okay, this is going to happen. And then Joseph's freaking out. What happens? An angel comes and talks to Joseph, and he's like, I don't care what you say, I'm going to believe it, because you're freaking me out. <laughs> Everywhere an angel shows up, people hit the ground. Get on their face. We have moments where it, it, it appears, based in the Old Testament, that when Moses was on the mountain getting the law, that it was given to him by angels. They're just ministers of the Lord. Similar to us, but different. Okay? So I don't want you to think of them that they function like we do. In Christ, you've been reconciled. You're invited into the Trinitarian community. Angels are not. I think I want to go over one story just because it's fun because it, it blows my mind a little bit. And since we're talking about angels, we can look at a little bit of angelology. But if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 10. It's in the, it's in the Old Testament. It comes after Ezekiel. I didn't mark it, so I'm turning there too. Daniel has a vision. And what I mean by a vision is like a dream. And if you know anything about dreams in the Old Testament, they're weird like our dreams. But oftentimes they were sent by God to deliver a message to a prophet. But many times the message that they got in the dream was like, I don't know what this means. Daniel often had the ability to interpret dreams and dreams were sent to him and so on and so forth. In this specific context, he's been given a dream and he's been told in the dream and he's waiting for the dream to be revealed to him. What does this mean? And an angel is going to come. So in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says this. The angel shows up, and I'm just going to read a little bit. It says the prince of, oh, he's going to apologize. Hey, I'm sorry I was delayed. Which I don't, I'm like, well, I don't know what that means. Okay, so the angel's like, I know you've been waiting for this answer. I'm sorry I was delayed. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. What does this mean? This is men, angels ministering. They're doing things that we can't see. So let me put this in Kevin's version, movie version. Ready? Roll it. So we have this angel, and he's 
he's been told, you're going to go and you're going to interpret this dream for Daniel. And he's like, great. But he's in the middle of a battle that we can't see against the prince of Persia, not the Disney movie. It, it's, it's obviously a demon of some kind. And they're in a battle, right? I don't know what's happening here, but there's a battle going on. And he's like, he delayed me for 21 days. Three weeks, I've been battling this prince of Persia. And then Michael shows up, who was one of the angels that we know by name. He shows up, and I, and I picture this. The demon's like, hold this, demon, because I have to go deliver a message. And I've been delayed 21 days. So Michael's like, no problem. So I'll hold this, and you go. And off he goes, and he delivers the message. And I'm going, what is happening? What is going on here? There's a world that angels are functioning in that we can't see or understand, but they're ministering to the Lord in ways that we can't compute. Spiritual battle's real. It's real. And it's constantly going on. There's, there's things happening. And it, it's, not like, it's not like spiritual battle like Star Wars where you're like, okay, there's, there's good and there's evil and they're constantly in this clash and we have no idea who's going to win because we already know who wins, Jesus. It's been written. In fact, if you ever want to thwart the enemy, you just go, it's written. You lose. There is no question. Jesus wins. He's already won. He will continue to win. That's not the question. But there's these spiritual battles that are constantly going on, and we see that they're ministering to the Lord in certain ways. I can't explain all of that to you. All I can say is, it's what they do. So they're not just sitting around playing harps. Like, that's important to process. They're doing the bidding of God. So they're ministering. At one point, we know that angels minister to Jesus. Right? It says when he comes out of the desert after being tested for 40 days that an angel comes and ministers to him. The lesser doesn't minister to the, 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 the greater doesn't minister to the lesser. The lesser ministers to the greater. The angels are there to do the bidding of God. And then we get but. So we understand angels a little bit. <laughs> We get down to verse 8. But I love buts in Scripture. Circle it, right? It always means like something else is coming. Your throne, Jesus, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne is forever. It's not about just ministering in a short period of time. It is eternal. It is always, it is always there. We're not talking about some battle where Jesus is like in this battle that we can't see and he's constantly doing his thing. Angels are doing that thing. I don't know why it's happening. It goes. Jesus is sitting on his throne going, I am here doing what? Sitting at the right hand of the Father advocating for those who are reconciled to the Father through me. And he's not stressed about it. 
I've had, a, it was an interesting week, and I'm looking at all of the things that are transpiring, and I've been flying all over the place, and if you talk to any, I mean, talk to any of your pastors and elders, like, we're just, it's crazy right now. Things are just happening, and it's really cool, and the Lord's moving in certain ways, but we're tired, and there's a lot going on. And I reached out to a friend of mine, and I'm like, he's like, how's things going? We hadn't talked to him while well, I explained it to him, and he's like, Kevin... I hear you, I understand, like all of this is really hard, you're good, and then this is what he said, Jesus isn't sweating it. And I'm like, you're right. He's not up there stressed, thinking about how is this gonna get done? He doesn't sweat it. He's not, he doesn't have the flaming sword, he's not fighting, he's already won the battles. He's already won the war. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father advocating for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, who are reconciled to the Father. He's there for you. This is why he is capable of saying, in me, your burden is light. Why? Because his burden is light. He's already taken the burden. He took it on on the cross. And now he sits on the throne in victory. And if you know Jesus personally, you are victorious in Christ. We don't have to sweat it. We have to sweat when we're sinning. We have to sweat when we're making bad decisions, but a life in Jesus, glorifying him, living a life in power of the Holy Spirit, we don't sweat that stuff. All over Scripture, this is what's so crazy, is you see the disciples. The disciples are such a great test case, right? Because oftentimes they're told by Jesus to go do something, and then we watch how they freak out when they're doing it, and then they come back and they're like, this was hard, this was crazy, this was a mess. And so we understand it. But here's the thing. Like, like if you think about, like I picture one moment where Jesus is like, okay, get in the boat, go to the other side. And then we have the story of the disciples going in and the water is everywhere, right? There's a storm and they're, they're like, these are fishermen. They're used to storms and they're saying, we're gonna die. What did Jesus say to them? Get in the boat and I'll meet you on the other side. What does that mean? They're gonna make it to the other side. There might be a storm in the middle but the promise was already given. But they, what ends up happening is we forget that Jesus is sitting on the throne and we pay more attention to the storm than what he promised. And then that impacts everything in our life, right? Because as soon as we start staring at the storm and we start sweating and we take on burdens the Lord didn't ask us to take on, everything becomes a mess. And Jesus is like, I got you. I've given you some promises. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we don't have to do our part. But it does mean that all of Jesus' promises, because of who he is, are going to happen. When we compare Jesus to angels, we see that Jesus' superior name in every way possible. We see that the angels worship him. He's superior because he's the one that gets worshiped. And we see that he's divinely sovereign. And then we get to our last verse here, and this is, this is the closing. Because the whole point, like, I guess like some of this is fun, and it's, I can geek out on the theology of what's going on here. But the reality is the author of Hebrews didn't write this to go, let me teach you about angels, and let me teach you about why Jesus is more superior. 
the ultimate end is to say, Jesus is more superior, therefore, your life should look different in Christ. Your life should look different in Jesus. It makes a difference to know all of these things. If he's superior in just this section of angels, then he's superior to everything else that we deem as spiritual. He's the one that we've got to focus on. So what does verse 9 say? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Still talking about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is how we relate to Jesus. Why did Jesus come as a man? So we have Jesus. He shows up on earth at the incarnation, and he's 100% man, 100% God. He's 100% man. Why? One, so we can relate to the best of our ability. Two, so he can represent mankind. He has to be man in order to die for man. He has to be man so that we can relate and understand. He has to be man so that we can have this understanding of this analogy that the way that the Lord's going to describe him. But he also has to be God. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, we see both. There's these moments where Jesus is not only declaring to be God, but there's moments where crazy things happen. There's these moments where it's like the veil that's described in Philippians chapter 2 at the kenosis, another fancy word, where Jesus is kind of, his glory, his godhood is veiled, that that veil is removed for just a second, and weird things, crazy things happen. We see them in the miracles, right? We see them hugely in the resurrection. But even in moments where it's like, do you remember the story of Jesus being arrested and the the guards come up and they're like, are you Jesus? And the words he uses is I am. What's the words he used? Yahweh. He he used the word of God and it says that the angels were like, I mean, sorry, not the angels. The, The soldiers were thrown backwards just by the word of the Lord. It was like that veil was lifted for just a second and his deity was shown. There's moments where people fall down on their feet and worship him. Peter, like it's a weird, it's a weird reaction for Peter to watch Jesus do a miracle on the boat, put the notes on the other side and there'll be fish and it happens and then Peter go, oh, that's really cool. That's not what Peter did. What does say Peter did? He hit his knees and said, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Why would he do that to another human being? Because the veil of his deity was removed at just a moment and Peter saw it. Why did Jesus have to be 100% man? I've explained. Why does he have to be 100% God? Because one, that's who he is. And he can't be anything but that. But two, only God is eternally valuable enough to die for more than one person. And scripture describes this. Well, one man might die for another man. But I can't die for hundred men because I'm not that valuable. I'm barely valuable to die for one. Jesus, infinite God, is capable of dying for all that he saves. That's phenomenal to think about. And it says that while he was here, he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, meaning 
It's this righteousness. This, this is why he's called the second Adam. The first Adam comes and he blows it. The second Adam comes in Jesus and he lives this perfect life. He never, ever, ever sinned, ever. He was perfect. He did what the first Adam was supposed to do. But let's flip this. He did what you were supposed to do. That's why when I'm presenting the gospel up here a lot, you'll hear me say, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. We're held to that standard, that standard of perfection. You were supposed to live the life that Jesus lived, never sinning, but we didn't. So Jesus came and lived it for us. He loved righteousness. He lived it perfectly. And then I'll say he died the death that we deserve. He took the sin of all that will be saved on him. All of it. And then three days later, he rises conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And he has earned, not just, I mean, he doesn't have to earn it, he's God, but he has earned, from a human standpoint, this ability to be king. It connects with us. The reason we worship Jesus above anything else is because he lived the life that we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserve, and three days later conquered sin, Satan, and death forever. And he says, I will take all of your unrighteousness and give you my righteousness in exchange. And then you, like me, will be in a kingdom for eternity. But even greater, because that's in the future, which is cool, I love the idea of heaven, I will give you the ability to pursue and accomplish the purposes that I have for you now. The message of Christianity, the message of Jesus isn't just about, oh, I get to go to heaven someday. That's all great. But that's not it. It's Jesus. You get relationship with Jesus. He gives you purpose and joy now and through eternity. It has to be about Jesus. I used to ask youth group when I was a youth pastor, if you went to heaven and it was perfect and Jesus wasn't there, would you be okay? It's a very telling question, isn't it? Because it shows what we worship. Heaven is where Jesus is. Yeah, it's a place, but it's also where Jesus is. Wherever he is, that's heaven. Because it's Jesus. As Christ followers, we have to remember that and celebrate it and apply it. The fact that when you became a Christ follower, that the Holy Spirit entered you and you became the temple, that gives you every opportunity to celebrate the joy of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus in every area of your life. It also gives you the ability to worship him correctly. What's above him? Something. A couple of things. So for those of you who are here and you're like, oh, okay, angels, don't worship angels, got it. I've... I've met with people and they're like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna worship anything then. I'm like, that's not the point. Scripture tells us we're gonna worship something. Why? You were created to worship. 
That's why we're always, no matter where you live or what background you have or what time of period we live in in history, always looking for something to worship. We're always looking for something greater than us that we can apply. We're always trying to be spiritual. We think that our generation has coined that. No. It's how we're built. It's how we were created. But the important thing is the object of that worship. It's not that we worship. It's the object of the worship that matters. It has to be Jesus because Jesus himself said, there is no other way. You can seek it in every way possible. You can go attempt to worship whatever you want. But the reality is Jesus is the only true being to be worshiped. And it's the only one that works. Why? Because he's king. Simplest example I can give you, politics. I don't know. I hate uh, politics. But you got, okay, president of the United States. And I hear people say all the time, like when, when the previous president was president, they're like, that's not my president. And now the current president is there's people, that's not my president. I'm like, it is. <laughs> they hold the office. Like, you don't have to like them. But the reality is, that's the president, right? You can deny it all you want, but still in the Oval Office. That's Jesus. You may not like the idea that he's king. You may not like the idea that he died for you. You may not like the idea that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You may not like the idea that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to the Father, but it's still truth because he's king. And he's the only one that has paid the cost that you deserve. So the only other option is to pay it yourself. And because we sin against an eternal God, that means eternal punishment. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know this Jesus, I am telling you, you want to. You want to make it personal. You want that exchange to take place. You want him to die for your sin and you want his righteousness. You want to be reconciled to the Father. You want Jesus to be the object of your worship. So how do you do that? Well, I don't want to say it's simple, but I will say it doesn't, it costs you everything, but costs you nothing. But to start, it just, it, it, it means you're going to have to come in contact with your own depravity and realize that you're a dirty, rotten sinner who needs a savior and the only savior is Jesus. That's how relationship begins. And you can do that today. So here's what I encourage you to do. If that's you and you're like, man, there's something stirring in here. I need to know more. Like, I want to know more. You can Talk to somebody, right? Ask questions. Pastor Matt's in the back back there. You can go find him. You can come find me. You can turn to the person next to you and go, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, then say, can we grab some coffee? I know a really good place. Don't leave here the same. For the church, we're not off the hook because the question is, what are you worshiping? We're about to do something crazy religious, right? We're going to take communion. We do this every week. We take communion at Church at the Well as, a re, as an opportunity for us to respond to what the Lord has convicted and encouraged in our heart. Sometimes we come to the communion table and I'm in tears. Sometimes it's tears of joy. Sometimes it's tears of hurt. Either way, it's all celebrated because of Jesus. 
So the band's going to come up. We'll sing a song. The elements are here. If you are not a member of Church at the Well, you can still partake in communion with us. You only need to be a member of the family of God through Christ. But I will say this. If you don't know Jesus personally, please don't partake. No shame. I just don't want you doing something religious and thinking you're leaving here good because you're not. You leave here good knowing Jesus personally. And I love you enough to tell you that. But church, what is the Lord doing? What's stirring up in your heart? How is he convicting you? What is he asking you to change? What is he revealing that you're worshiping above Jesus? Bring it to the foot of the cross. Give it to him. And watch what he does. End with this. Imagine. Picture a church. I don't know. This one. In a little community like East Boston. Where all of its individuals that claim to be Christ followers were not perfect. But by the power and grace of Jesus sought to worship him in everything that they did. What would happen? It would be beautiful. Jesus says to pray for that. On earth as it is in heaven. The church has the opportunity to do that to our greatest ability by his grace. Let's do it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are greater than spirituality. You are greater than religion. You're God creator. Lord, remind us that we've sinned against you in horrible ways, but we have Jesus. Remind those in here who know you that there's no condemnation in Jesus. Remind us that we need to worship you. And Lord, would you help us to see the things that we're placing above you? And would you give us the grace and the faith and the courage and the boldness to eliminate those things in our lives and replace them with Jesus? Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now who has never given their heart, their faith, trusted Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, I ask right now that you would regenerate their heart, that you give them a new heart, that you'd remove the heart of them a heart of flesh, that you'd give them the courage and the boldness to ask questions and, Lord, to come to know you personally and to give up what they're putting their faith and trust in that's not you. Lord, don't let anyone leave here not knowing you. And Lord, empower your church to worship you above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.